0: From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is out this week. I'm Bob Garfield. On Tuesday, President Donald Trump delivered on a long-standing campaign promise, an achievement of such grave importance and personal significance that he let someone else announce it.
1: The program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. That
0: was Attorney General Jeff Sessions breaking the news about the generally popular Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, DACA, that for five years has offered temporary protection from deportation for undocumented immigrants brought here as children. The onus now falls on Congress to reinstate the program's benefits in the next six months, lest some 800,000 DREAMers lose their work permits and are deported from the country they grew up in. Slate writer and legal analyst Mark Joseph Stern has examined the administration's argument for killing DACA. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. This was from Attorney General Sessions' announcement on Tuesday.
1: The effect of this unilateral executive amnesty, among other things, contributed to a surge of minors at the southern border that yielded terrible humanitarian consequences. It also denied jobs to hundreds of thousands of Americans by allowing those same illegal aliens to take those jobs. Let's start with the claim that
0: DACA contributed to a surge of unaccompanied minors across the southern border. Not true? Not true at all. And we know this for a few reasons. The
2: first is that there is a surge in unaccompanied minors coming to the southern border. But this surge actually began in 2008. And DACA was introduced in the summer of 2012. Now, there was an uptick in this surge more recently, but that uptick occurred in 2011, a year and a half before DACA was announced. And we know that this is largely attributable to a sharp increase in gang violence in certain Central American countries as well as a new willingness by drug cartels, especially those in Mexico, to target children. This really has nothing to do with DACA. And the second reason that we know that is because the policies guidelines required that individuals who apply have already been in the country when DACA was announced and implemented. So it simply wouldn't make any sense for parents in Central America, as Sessions implied, to send their unaccompanied children to this country in order to receive DACA because one glance at the guidelines would inform them that, in fact, their children aren't eligible.
0: Session alleges that the consequence of DACA has been the loss of hundreds of thousands of jobs for Americans
2: he doesn't offer any evidence. Economists have failed to come up with any proof that immigrants documented or undocumented are taking jobs from Americans, like Sessions said. In fact, the data seems to suggest that Americans and immigrants are competing for different sets of jobs. But it's also important to note, as the New York Times did on Wednesday, that a huge proportion of DACA beneficiaries have actually entered fields where we need more employees. Employees, specifically hundreds of thousands of new workers in healthcare and education over the next five to ten years. And we just
0: don't have enough people competing for these jobs. All right. So that covers how Sessions misrepresented the facts. But there is also the nature of DACA itself. He calls it amnesty. It does not give individuals lawful permanent
2: residence status. It doesn't give them green cards, and it doesn't put them even on a path to citizenship. What DACA does is take a certain fairly narrow group of individuals, people who were brought to this country unlawfully by their parents when they were children, and formally defers deportation for them. All it does is say the government's not going to deport you unless it has a really good reason. And while you're here, you will have a work
0: permit so you can enter the workforce and pay taxes. What is being said in, let's say, the right-wing media ecosystem that is demonstrably untrue about DACA and its beneficiaries? First, the line that Sessions used, which is that it's caused a humanitarian
2: crisis in the form of unaccompanied minors at the southern border, which we know not to be true. And second, that DACA beneficiaries do not deserve to be in this country because they're criminals. It turns out that the number of DACA beneficiaries who have committed crimes is extraordinarily low, much, much lower than with the general population, something like 0.3%. And a related lie that I've heard a lot on like Breitbart or that kind of corner of the internet is that DACA beneficiaries are criminals by definition because they're living in this country without documentation. That is also not true. Unlawful presence in America by itself is not a criminal offense. It is a civil offense. So you can be fined for living in this country without documentation, but it doesn't make you a criminal. It's a false talking
0: point. You know, apart from the darkest corners of right wing media, have these notions been accepted in reporting about
2: immigration? You certainly see it in reporting from Fox News, and you also sometimes see it come into articles that try to frame this as a both-sides issue. Just to give an example, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, a well-known nativist, recently claimed on television that a lot of DACA beneficiaries are, quote, gangbangers— NBC published a report that said something like, uh, where some see dreamers, others see gang bangers. It's not true. They certainly don't join gangs at at an equal rate to citizens. Um, They do not, by and large, have a gang problem. But when these figures of authority throw out lines like this, they tend to get picked up and deployed as sort of the other perspective to this issue. I think that's unfortunate because this is one case where you have one perspective that's fact-based and one that's not.
0: What about the left? Is there progressive rhetoric that also doesn't pass the uh, sniff test? Well, you know... I've noticed that a lot of
2: progressives are defending DACA in terms that seem to depict the program as perhaps more wonderful than it really is. DACA was a stopgap measure. It was always meant to be temporary, and it is far from perfect. And so I think it would be unwise for progressives to frame DACA as anything more than a temporary measure, better than nothing, to be sure, but certainly not the end goal. What we really want is a law that provides these people with actual legal status and puts them on a path to citizenship. DACA doesn't do that, uh, and that's
0: one of its many shortcomings. Thank you, Mark. Of course. Mark Joseph Stern is a legal analyst and a writer for Slate. We have often observed on this program how the GOP can take any event or presidential policy, no matter how antithetical to long-standing conservative doctrine, and embrace it as if it were an immutable expression of Republican philosophy. But Republicans do not have a monopoly on the politics of convenience. When it comes to the immigration debate, says political scientist Peter Beinart, Democrats are ignoring certain economic data, past positions, and long-standing allegiances. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. In promoting the benefits of immigration, lawful and otherwise, What are liberals suddenly leaving out?
3: As the Republican Party has become increasingly nativist, I think the Democrats have lost the language that they once had about some of the costs that immigration brings. I say this as someone who's a supporter of a pretty liberal immigration policy, but I don't think you're going to win political support for it unless you acknowledge some of the strains that especially low-wage immigration can produce.
0: But it wasn't long ago that the debate on the left was significantly more nuanced. And I'm not talking about fringe critics. You've name-checked some bold-faced names. Right. So if you look about
3: a decade ago, you can find writing by New York Times columnist Paul Krugman, for instance, where he says that immigration places liberal principles in conflict because it can put downward pressure on wages of lower-skilled Americans. Barack Obama, in The Audacity of Hope, talks a bit about the legitimacy of some degree of cultural anxiety about bringing in people who don't speak English, for instance. Bernie Sanders, you know, as recently as the beginning of his presidential run, basically says that he's concerned that too much low-skilled immigration will bring down wages. He says that the Koch brothers are the kinds of folks that want a lot of low-skilled immigration and that it actually would hurt American workers. So there's been a pretty dramatic shift on the left towards a very pro-immigration view, and I myself am sympathetic to a lot of that, but I think that what has been lost is some recognition of the political and economic and cultural challenges that immigration brings, especially to the kind of society that
0: liberals want. You wrote in your piece that progressive commentators routinely claim that there's a near consensus among economists on immigration's benefits. Consensus, you say, not necessarily. I think
3: most economists would say that overall, immigration benefits the U.S. economy. But There's a real debate about what the impact is on lower-skilled workers, whether jobs that low-skilled immigrants do are the same jobs that Native-born Americans might do, or whether, sometimes in subtle ways, their jobs are actually different. There are very serious, well-regarded economists on both sides of that question, but I think as it gets translated into the journalistic and political discussion by liberals, there's a tendency to downplay the views of those economists who do think there may be some costs to low-skilled American workers of bringing in an immigrant population that has
0: a lot of low-skilled workers. So you're suggesting, look, we can have this debate, but don't pretend there aren't winners and losers. Now, we know there are stagnant wages, right? Do we know that it is immigration that is the significant force there? Too much supply in the labor pool, or is it other issues, like the export of high-wage manufacturing jobs abroad. I don't think many economists
3: would say that immigration is the major factor in that. There are a whole series of other factors that have to do with changes in the economy that probably play a larger role. But I think the point that you made is really the critical point, which is that immigration creates winners and losers. Instead of sometimes, I think, ending up in the situation where Democrats and liberals don't talk about the losers and therefore seem kind of blind to the anxieties that other Americans feel or kind of dismissive of them, what the Trump campaign has exposed is that there is more anxiety about immigration than perhaps liberals had recognized. And while I think it's absolutely fair to characterize some of that as ugly and racist, just calling it ugly and racist isn't enough as a political response. One of the challenges that liberals have to face is there's good data from, for instance, the Harvard political scientist Robert Putnam that As societies become more diverse, more religiously, more racially, more ethnically diverse, it becomes harder to maintain the social solidarity that you need to redistribute wealth to deal with economic inequality. There's a reason that very homogenous societies like the Scandinavian societies have traditionally had the biggest welfare states. Diversity is absolutely a good, which is helping America tremendously. But asking people to redistribute wealth to people who are not like them is always a very, very significant challenge. And I think liberals have to be more open about talking about the tension between these desires that we have.
0: It's hard to thread the needle, though, politically. You were talking about Bernie Sanders' assertion that an influx of low-wage immigrants is just what the Koch brothers are trying to achieve. He got slapped down for that and ended up having his own views uh, evolve on the subject. They seem to be damned if they do, damned if they don't. One of the questions
3: that I think the Trump administration has really put front and center in American politics is the question of the obligations that we have to our fellow Americans versus our obligations to people in other parts of the world. And Trump and Bannon have made a very, very, very hard distinction. Essentially, we have almost no obligations to anyone outside of America's shores. I think that's totally wrong. I think America has really strong moral obligations. But we also have to recognize, and this is what Sanders was acknowledging, and I think people like him should be able to continue to acknowledge this, that sometimes our moral obligations to vulnerable and poor outside of America's borders can come into conflict with our obligation to the vulnerable and poor inside America's borders.
0: It seems to me at the heart of this may be yet another more structural, more fundamental conflict, and that is Between the age-old American ethic of the melting pot, assimilation and immigrants becoming integral to aspects of American society and culture versus multiculturalism, which focuses on cultural differences and unique qualities, often to the exclusion of the melting pot. Is that conflict at play here? Yeah, I think
3: in some ways it is. America would be a much less interesting, much less creative place if people had to kind of give up the culture that they brought to this country. It wouldn't be America at all. But I also think that politically, Americans know that the Democratic Party celebrates diversity. What the American public doesn't always know – Enough, and Democrats need to remind Americans sometimes, is that the Democratic Party also celebrates unity, that they also believe in an Americanness that brings us all together despite our cultural differences. I think there's a reason that Barack Obama's statement in the 2004 Democratic Convention is one of the best remembered of his phrases.
0: There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America, there's the United States of America.
3: Coming from a Democrat, that was an important statement in a time of so much division.
0: If the Democrats do as you say and are more nuanced in the rhetoric about immigration, will they then not face the perception that they have been pushed to the right by Trump and Trumpism? That's possible. But when you lose
3: an election, even an election like this where you know Hillary Clinton actually won more votes— you have to adapt. You know, it's it's a matter of political survival. And that's what smart political parties do. They find a way of remaining true to their core moral principles, but find new language and new strategies for getting a political majority. You know, we've had a pretty high rate of immigration now in the United States since the 1960s, and it has really made America a very different country. I think a better country, but a very different country, and it's coincided with growing economic inequality, which has produced a kind of backlash and resentment that Democrats can call racist, some of it is racist, but politically, they have to find answers for it acknowledging some of the strains rather than trying to pretend they don't exist and finding a set of policies and a message which talks about how America can become stronger and more unified even
0: as we become more diverse. Peter, thank you very much. My pleasure. Peter Beinart is a contributing editor for The Atlantic and a professor of journalism and political science at City University of New York. Coming up, a storm is brewing, and the Southern Poverty Law Center finds itself in the eye. This is On the Media.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is...
1: listener supported WNYC
5: Studios
0: Hey it's Latif from Radio Lab Our
1: goal with each episode is to make you think how did i live this long and not know that Radio Lab adventures on the edge of what we think
0: we know Listen wherever you get podcasts This is on the media I'm Bob Garfield As a swath of the nation embraces nativism sometimes with violence The Southern Poverty Law Center has, as usual, been serving the media with statistics drawn from its intelligence-gathering projects on the purveyors of hate. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, at least 60 publicly funded Confederacy symbols have been removed or renamed since... According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, there are
3: nearly 900 hate groups operating in the The U.S. The
0: Southern Poverty Law Center, which tracks hate groups, says that super PAC was started by the white supremacist American Freedom Party... Since the 70s, when it famously sued the sorry remnants of the KKK, furthering its decline, the nonprofit advocacy group has been synonymous with intolerance of intolerance. As such, it has been derided by the far right as a partisan smear operation. So it was no surprise this week to see the conservative Washington Free Beacon raise questions about SPLC's finances, including millions of dollars of assets parked offshore this confirmed the narrative of the SPLC as a hustle, a money machine in the guise of a public interest group. That piece and other inquiries by such diverse publications as Harper's, Politico, and SPLC's hometown Montgomery Advertiser make clear that, mission or no mission, the organization has never strayed far from its co-founders' direct marketing roots. Morris D's got rich persuading people to put checks in the mail. And with Nazis in the street, donors are sending checks as never before. Ben Schreckinger is a staff writer for Politico magazine. He says the charges sting not just the SPLC, but the news outlets that have long relied on it.
4: If you are doing a story on hate groups, on white nationalists, on right-wing militias or right-wing anti-government extremist groups, they are the go-to resource almost every newsroom in the country has used them. They were popping up in the New York Times and other places most recently in the wake of Charlottesville.
0: So there's two questions here. One is whether it has devolved into a racket. And the other is whether the data that it supplies is trustworthy itself. Let's begin there. There have been accusations that SPLC has been indiscriminate in the organizations, it identifies as promulgating hate.
4: That's right. And this criticism has been around on the right for quite a long time. Social conservatives have complained, for example, that the designation of the Family Research Council, which they consider to be a mainstream evangelical family values type organization, SPLC considers to be a hate group, has been unfairly labeled their critique is that anti-immigration groups have been unfairly labeled. And that's gone back several years. More recently, the SPLC has made a number of designations that have drawn a lot of criticism, not just from your typical movement conservatives, but from really all parts of the political spectrum, especially their designations of Ion Hirsi Ali and Majid Nawaz. Nawaz is Muslim. Ayon Hirsi Ali was born Muslim. They are anti-Islamist campaigners, considered by many people to be heroes of civil rights, heroes of human rights. And the SPLC has labeled them anti-Muslim extremists and drawn a lot of criticism for doing so over the last year or so. And these designations sometimes have stark consequences. In the case of the Family Research Council, after that group was designated an anti-gay hate group several years ago, a troubled young man, read about this designation and went to the lobby of the FRC's headquarters in Washington and started shooting it up. I believe he ended up wounding a security guard. And on the less extreme end of that, for groups that are labeled hate groups by an organization like the SPLC that's considered authoritative, foundations may cancel grants, that sort of thing.
0: Should the press be more cautious about dealing with this organization?
4: There's clearly a lot of valuable work that the organization does, both in terms of its advocacy and litigation, but also in terms of this intelligence project, which does track the activities of hate groups. This resurgence of a new form of racism, the alt-right movement, does warrant tracking. But when you talk to people who track hate groups professionally, track extremism professionally, they do lament the fact that there's not a more neutral watchdog organization than the SPLC, that the SPLC has sort of cornered the market on monitoring extremism and monitoring hate groups in the United States because they feel that they can't always take what they get from the SPLC at face value.
0: You can argue about whether a organization or an individual who takes a hard line on one side of the culture wars is a hate monger or merely conservative. But if you're loosening your definitions to raise awareness just to fill the coffers, then you have a problem. How is the Southern Poverty Law Center spending the money? Is it for litigation? Is it awareness raising? Is it staffing the offices that track hate
4: groups? Where's the money going? This has received a lot of scrutiny going back at least to the 90s compared to a group like the ACLU the SPLC spends a much lower proportion of what it takes in on litigation there are other similar civil society nonprofits that spend more on programs and less on overhead than the SPLC a lot of the money that the group takes in goes to its endowment its endowment is well well north of 100 million at this point it may be north of 200 million dollars it has a much larger endowment than similarly sized NGOs. It's been accused of categorizing costs that really look like fundraising, where it will send out a mailer asking for money. Normally you have to categorize that as a fundraising cost, and it's not considered good for a nonprofit to have high fundraising costs. But the SPLC will also put some facts on their fundraising mailer, and they'll categorize it as educational, so it'll show up differently in their finances.
0: I don't want to gloss over this question of endowment. Another way to describe that would be cash in the bank. And if you have $200 million sitting there, on the interest alone, you can cover the Southern Poverty Law Center's operations for years, and yet those mailers keep going out, expressing a sense of urgency in the battle against intolerance. How do they justify the constant money-raising when the money is just stacking
4: up in the vault? Well, when I sat down with the group's leaders earlier this year, one justification that they offered for the size of the endowment was the fact that they will take on complex litigation that can drag out for years. And they say, if we're going to take on a case that may last 10 years, we need to know that we're going to be able to weather whatever storms may come. Therefore, we need this massive endowment. Perhaps there's something to that, although the ACLU takes on more litigation, takes on years-long litigation, does not have the same size endowment compared to the scope of its activities. And they also have a new justification, which is that the presidency of Donald Trump, the rise of the alt-right that rode Trump's coattails into relevance, makes them vital to the interests of our society.
0: From your perspective, which is more troubling, the fact that in these highly polarized times, it's easy to dismiss them as just another partisan liberal interest group or that they have maybe tens of millions of dollars squirreled away in offshore accounts in the Caribbean? Of those two, what's the more indicting
4: I think that the questions about their finances and fundraising probably should primarily be of concern to prospective donors. But from my perspective as a journalist and as someone who's watching the political scene, it's the questions about their political motivation that are most relevant that make it problematic to rely on them as a source. And to wonder about the broader effect they may be having on the political discourse and the polarization we're seeing in the country. Ben, thank you very much. Sure thing. Thanks so much for having me. Ben Schreckinger is
0: a staff writer for Politico magazine. Richard Cohen is the president of the Southern Poverty Law Center, who dismisses the criticism as partisan smoke with no underlying fire. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bob. With the stipulation that the Washington Free Beacon is a right-wing publication that would probably delight in any negative publicity attached to SPLC, it raises some very interesting questions, beginning with, why do you have so much cash parked offshore?
1: Look... We have an excellent investment advisor called Cambridge Associates. It advises many of the leading foundations, universities, and nonprofit organizations in the country. And as part of an overall balanced portfolio, they have us invested in certain funds that typically are incorporated offshore. it's an extraordinarily common thing for endowments like ours. Nothing up our sleeve. You know, hedge funds, which we have a number of, are actually very conservative investments because they are intended to dampen the volatility of the market. I'm not sure
0: it is common for 501c3 advocacy organizations. It might be common for university endowments, but you're raising money all the time, ostensibly for the purposes of carrying out your mission. There doesn't seem to be an easy explanation for why you have such a large endowment set aside and you're still
1: seeking funds for ongoing operations. Sure. That's a separate question. We've started an endowment very early in our history, really to give us the strength to continue our work far into the future. We talk about our endowment on our website, talk about it regularly with our supporters. We think it's a source of strength, not a source of weakness.
0: All right. But once again, then, there is the apparent conflict between your fundraising appeals which proclaim a sense of urgency to fight the good fight and the fact that you have five or six years of operating revenue stashed in the Caribbean
1: or elsewhere. Stashed in the Caribbean makes it sound like a really nefarious thing. And I know that you know there are people who are more adept in the financial world than I am. But if you call a place like Cambridge that advises literally thousands of endowments, they'll tell you the same thing I do. Well, let's just say
0: invested prudently outside of the state of Alabama. Okay. How do you reconcile the enormous endowment with the urgent messages for cash from donors to fight intolerance and hatred from extreme players?
1: Look, we're in this fight for the long run and, you know, have quite a significant operation. This year, we'll spend close to $60 million. That requires the support of people from all over the country, and we truly, truly appreciate that support. Our endowment is something that's kind of a well-known fact, and they know that we're going to fight these cases until the end. They know that we have the ability to fight cases for 20 years if it takes that.
0: When I get a direct mail or some other piece of communications from you that both seeks money and does so by calling my attention to some extremist outrage, does any part of that solicitation get attributed to the awareness budget versus the promotions
1: expenditure? A portion of it may, depending upon the nature of the letter, the information in it, and whether it has a call to action for our donors. These are things that are governed by generally accepted accounting principles, similar to the way other organizations that rely on similar forms of fundraising allocate their funds.
0: To put this in the most personal possible terms, I have looked at Southern Poverty Law Center over the years as a, you know, a do-gooder organization that has helped me understand what the threat is from right-wing extremism and from hate groups of every stripe, and to help me evaluate journalistically, you know, what's going on out there. My assumption always has been that you were free of any bias apart from the bias to inform the public. But I can see a pretty direct line between the messaging about the threat and the till there in Montgomery, Alabama it makes me wonder whether my trust has been misplaced. What can you say to me to restore my faith that your motives are as pure as I have always been led to believe?
1: Look, the hate group list that we put out, for example, has been compiled in the same way for two decades. I think it stood the test of time. 98% of all the groups we list, no one disputes A tiny portion of them have been controversial at times, and I'm prepared to defend those as well. I know that academics often rely on our list. People who run regression analyses, other fancy statistical programs, will rely on our list because of its comprehensiveness and because of its consistency in the way it's collected. I don't make any apologies for being a partisan. We're a partisan against the fight against hate. But I think the lists that we put together are very, very solid.
0: Uh, But you also don't want to be the boy who cried, Nazi. And I wonder if this current controversy has made you and Morris Dees reevaluate your methodology and your threshold for putting a prominent name on the list. You were burned when you included Ben Carson, for example, and there's other names on the list who may be politically conservative, but certainly don't seem to represent anything close to violent extremism. Are you thinking about something like the Family Research Council, Bob? Yeah, let's let's talk about the Family Research Council at the very core of the so-called religious right. They're on your list. Why?
1: Yes, they are because of their continuous incendiary name calling and baseless lies about the LGBT community. They describe the LGBT community as sick, perverted, evil, a danger to the country. They propagate known lies about the LGBT community. For example, the idea that LGBT people are more likely to be pedophiles. It's something that's been continuously discredited. The Family Research Council's Tony Perkins once said that the It Gets Better campaign, a campaign to give young people hope, was disgusting. Some sort of nefarious plot to lure young children into the homosexual lifestyle, to use his words. I don't think those are mainstream ideas. I don't think those are healthy views in our society. The LGBT community is the most likely to be victimized by hate crimes in our country calling them sick, diseased, perverted, and a danger to children and a danger to society, in my mind, may contribute to that atmosphere. So I think the FRC well deserves the hate group label, regardless of the mainstream support they might have in very, very, very conservative circles.
0: Well, if that's the threshold, then, you know, where is the Assemblies of God church? Where is about a third of Congress? If you open the tent that wide, you're going to have an awfully long hate list.
1: I don't think that that's a fair characterization of the views of most Christian groups. I don't think most uh, Christian groups, even those that oppose gay marriage... And make it a regular habit to spread demonizing lies about the LGBT community. I think that would be wrong. I mean, you know, we don't list, for example, focus on the family as a hate group. It's an extraordinarily conservative group. That's a group that's opposed to gay marriage, but they're not in the business of spreading demonizing lies about the LGBT community in the way Mr. Perkins and his outfit are.
0: Do you not perceive that if Southern Poverty Law Center is viewed not as fighting the good fight, but as being opportunists exploiting our political miseries, that it kills the goose that lays the golden egg. I mean, even just as a PR matter, is this not something that you're thinking about right now?
1: Well, I mean, it's the reason I'm on your show. So we can set the record straight. And you might have seen today, there was a letter signed by kind of a rogues gallery of the radical right, Tony Perkins, General Boykin... Others attacking us because they want to silence our voice. They don't want us to call out their hate. Richard, thank you. Thank you.
0: Richard Cohen is the president of the Southern Poverty Law Center. He spoke to us from Montgomery, Alabama. Coming up, why we have FEMA and why you shouldn't count on it. This is on the media. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. We don't think about FEMA much until that's all we think about. And consider the Emergency Management Agency's docket in just the past few weeks. Hurricane Irma's path through Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands and Florida. Hurricane Harvey's historic devastation in Texas. Wildfires raging in the West all while FEMA faces proposed cuts in President Trump's budget and major staffing positions remain unfilled. But historian Garrett Graff says the agency's, quote, under-the-radar nature was originally a feature, not a bug. He wrote The Secret History of FEMA for Wired this week. Garrett, welcome back to OTM.
5: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Nowadays, we think of FEMA as associated with the recovery in the wake of disasters like hurricanes and floods, tornadoes, and so forth, but that wasn't its original portfolio, was it?
5: No. FEMA and FEMA's predecessors, it's an agency that is regularly reshuffled and moved around, dates back to 1950 when Harry Truman started the Federal Civil Defense Administration, Its main mission for the majority of the first half of its life was to plan for urban evacuations, to plan for the stockpiles, to run
0: fallout shelters, preparing for nuclear war. There was a uh, pretty famous video that was produced and then reproduced and reproduced in the, the 60s, I guess, in the 70s. Can you tell me its history and what became of it? FEMA and its predecessors, you know, devoted
5: an incredible amount of time and energy over the years to educating the population. I mean, remember those Bert the Turtle duck and cover drills in elementary school.
0: Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of
5: us must remember to do the same thing duck and cover with the idea that if you just crouched low enough under your school desk, <laughs> you would survive the atomic bomb.
0: Paul and Patty know what to do. Paul covered the back of his head so that he wouldn't be burned. And Patty covered herself with the coat she was
5: carrying. They got tired over the years, though, of redoing these animations every time that fashion changed, every time that cars changed. And so as FEMA began officially in 1979, They created a stick figure video that they intended to use for the remainder of however long the Cold War lasted to be aired in the event of a Soviet threat.
0: Of course, attack could come by surprise, but more likely there would be a time of growing international tension with all its signs and warnings, lasting days, perhaps even weeks, giving you time for some preparations. FEMA's big
5: effort in the 1980s was this series of plans known as the Crisis Relocation Plans. It was part of a secret effort known at the time as Project 908, 908 in military parlance, that would have planned for the evacuations of urban areas out into more rural parts of the country. So most of Connecticut would evacuate out to vermont and new hampshire new york city would evacuate into upstate new york and into pennsylvania dc to northern virginia
0: which makes sense on the face of it because both nuclear blasts and the fallout would be heavily concentrated in the urban areas however it's an insane proposition these plans you know looked great on
5: paper the new york city plan would have required precisely 3.3 days They knew how many Staten Island ferries they needed to ferry X number of passengers up the Hudson to Saratoga. They knew how many airliners from LaGuardia they needed to ferry people into the middle of Pennsylvania, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it would have, as you said, never borne anything close to what would have actually happened in reality. I mean, you can just sort of imagine the panic of, yeah, there's a looming nuclear war You're on the list to evacuate on the third day, so just keep hanging out in Park Slope, hit the co-op, go to your yoga class, and we'll come back for you on Saturday, would not have gone very well.
0: Now, we're speaking on a Wednesday. So far, America has not been in a nuclear war. Of course, our show doesn't air till Friday. But it's fair to say that as the Cold War wound down and as the Soviet Empire disintegrated, FEMA's mission shifted away from civil defense and more towards civil preparedness and emergency response. How did that play out?
5: So the forerunners of FEMA began doing some natural disaster response in the 1960s. As the Cold War wore down, it became primarily a natural disaster response agency. But it was not something that the agency took to Easily, many of the very high-tech tools that they were deploying in the 80s and early 90s to try to respond to natural disasters turned out to be too high-tech. They had these souped-up command posts that were supposed to help guide the nation through nuclear war, known as the MERS units, the Mobile Emergency Response System. And they tried to put some of these facilities out to things like Hurricane Andrew, only to discover that while these command posts could talk on encrypted networks to military units around the rest of the globe, they lacked the basic capability to actually be able to talk to first responders down the road.
0: And the 82nd Airborne and NORAD aren't much help when
5: a city is underwater. Exactly. And so they ended up spending a lot of the 90s trying to retool some of this technology for natural disasters.
0: FEMA's history dealing with weather-related disasters is, uh, it's not just spotty. It's pretty much uniformly
5: terrible, isn't it? Uniformly terrible in the 80s and early 90s during the Reagan and George H.W. Bush era. Then President Clinton actually did a lot of work to clean it up under the administrator then, James Lee Witt, one of, if not the best, administrators in FEMA's history. And FEMA was a very high-functioning agency up until the early 2000s.
0: This is after 9-11, when FEMA was shuffled again into the Department of Homeland Security and lost its direct access to the Oval Office. And then,
5: of course, we all remember during Hurricane Katrina, Michael, heck of a job Brown.
1: FEMA's been on the ground for four days going into the fifth day. Why no massive
0: airdrop of food and and water. In Banda Aceh, in Indonesia, they got a food drop two days after the tsunami struck.
1: We're feeding those people in the convention center. We're, we
0: have fed over 150,000 people as of last night. But I guess I the point is as of last that, night, sir, so I that, forgive me,
4: I so have to that, stop you. Well,
5: When a disaster strikes, FEMA is really reliant on local resources, state resources, and federal resources. And it needs a lot of help in these situations, which is part of what didn't happen during Katrina. And so it's been, you know, a decade-long rebuilding period for FEMA ever since. And so far, at least, with Hurricane Harvey, they have won pretty high marks. But again, it's an agency that today is still struggling to get the respect and the leadership that it deserves. The two deputy administrators have been sitting on the sidelines through Hurricane Harvey because the Senate hasn't yet scheduled confirmation hearings for them. FEMA has a lot of supplies sitting around in stockpiles, but it doesn't have high water vehicles of its own to go into flooded areas it doesn't have thousands of fema school buses to evacuate people contrary to some of the conspiracy theories online there is no standing army for fema
1: oh yes the fema camps exist we've covered that ad nauseum here on the common sense show as many other sites as well we know about the super facility in alaska the one where they're currently conducting behavior modification experiments
0: the right-wing conspiracy theories, the FEMA concentration camps for political opponents of the Obama administration.
5: I think part of the challenge for FEMA is that they only make headlines in these very distinct moments. And so, you know, in March and April, it's very easy looking at a spreadsheet to say, yeah, let's cut a couple hundred million dollars out of FEMA grants. What good is that money doing? Then August rolls around, and it's hurricane season, and you're like, oh, boy, I wish we'd spent a couple hundred million dollars on preparedness back in March. By the time there is a problem with
0: FEMA, it is far too late to do anything about it. Now, some of the public outreach that the government did through FEMA and its predecessors throughout the Cold War seems quaint and silly now. But public information in time of disaster, whether nuclear or weather disaster— is obviously of the essence. Is the public prepared for whatever might happen next?
5: This is really, I think, a fundamental disconnect in what the public expects of FEMA and what is possible. FEMA is not there for the minutes and hours of an unfolding attack or disaster. FEMA's job is to evacuate the leadership of the United States. FEMA runs the central locator system, the minute-by-minute tracking of the whereabouts of everyone in the presidential line of succession. And when an emergency happens, their job is to get those people to those mountain bunkers or up into airborne command posts. Really, FEMA's only job with the civilian population is in the days and weeks and months after an attack or natural disaster to begin to pick up the pieces. What I think most Americans don't understand is that to a very large extent, all of us are on our own until a couple of days later when the federal government is supposed to show up. Garrett, thank you very much. Thank you for having
0: me. Garrett Graff is the author of The Secret History of FEMA, a piece he did for Wired, where he is a contributing editor. He's also the author of Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. So just as Texas began bailing out from the deluvian destruction of Hurricane Harvey, the historically furious Hurricane Irma tour through the Caribbean.
1: The monster storm roared by Puerto Rico last night, knocking out power to more than a million people living there. Authorities in Barbuda and St. Martin, they report more than 90% of those islands are damaged or destroyed. Governor Rick Scott preemptively issuing a state of emergency in all of Florida's 67 counties. The worldwide
0: media and their audiences have gaped in horror at the raw power of these storms. And Why? because of our transparent catastrophe bias. There haven't been more hurricanes, and they're no more dangerous than any others in previous years. But doesn't matter, because the bias is built in. There is a desire to advance this climate change agenda, and hurricanes are one of the fastest and best ways to do it. That was Rush Limbaugh, who, along with much of the right-wing media, is constitutionally incapable of processing the news without seeing a liberal plot. So desperate was he to find a conspiracy, the world's loudest Republican managed to find fault with commerce. You have these various retail outlets who spend a lot of advertising dollars with the local media. The local media, in turn reports in such a way as to create the panic way far out, which sends people into these stores to fill up with water and to fill up with batteries, and it becomes a never-ending, repeated cycle. Never mind the deaths, the ruined lives, the shattered economies, and the hundreds of billions of dollars of storm damage. It's all rigged, and you are all naive fools, just so as you know. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Loewinger, and Leah Feder. We had more help from John Hanrahan and Monique Laborde, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Terrence Bernardo and Sam Baer. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Thank you also to Andy Lancet from WNYC Archives. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Brooke Gladstone will be back next week. I'm Bob Garfield.
4: On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.